So we're going to jump in today. If you have a Bible, I want you to find the book of Ruth. I say find the book of Ruth because I'm guessing that most of you have never heard a sermon series that takes place in the Old Testament in the book of Ruth. And that's where we're going to be for the next four weeks, the book of Ruth. So as you're turning there, I wanted to tell you a story. Back in 2004, I had spent a few days in Colorado for a, a, a ministry conference, a youth pastor's conference. When it was over, I thought, I don't get to go to Colorado ever, if, if often at all. And so I'm going to take a couple extra days and I'm going to explore. So I booked a couple nights in a uh, motel in the Rocky Mountain National Park. Anybody ever been there? It is incredible. It is beautiful and it's everything you see. And, and it was magnificent. So after the conference was over, I made the drive through the mountains, explored throughout the day, and then I thought, I'm going to check into my motel room. I'm going to, and I'd actually booked the manliest motel I could find. So it was kind of this chain of rustic looking cabins with a little stream right through the middle of it, and you could see the mountain. It was just awesome. And so I thought, you know, I'm going to do what the manliest men would do in an empty night in a motel. I'm going to buy some beef jerky, and I'm going to watch ESPN. And that's what I thought. But the cool part of these cabins were that every one of them had a fireplace, and they provided wood. So I thought, well, i got to light a fire. Of course I'm going to do that. And it was it was really hot, so, but I was like, I'm in the Rocky Mountain National Park. I'm going to build a fire. And so I lit the fire. I settled in, and I started watching ESPN. And about five minutes later, I realized my, hotel, my motel room was getting incredibly smoky. And I thought, well, this isn't a great fireplace if it's all coming in here with the smoke. And about the time that thought left my brain, this loudest, most deafening smoke alarm that I've ever heard in my life began to ring out in my room. And I realized it was so loud because it wasn't just in my room. It was actually in every cottage and every cabin (laughs) along that creek. And and so I thought, it's not going to burn down. It's right there in the fireplace. I can see it. All I have to do is tell someone. So I stepped outside to realize that every other guest now was outside, and it was my fault. (laughs) And I I found the, the, the motel manager, and he showed me that there's this thing called a draft. Yeah. I didn't know that at that point in in my life. I I learned a lot. He taught me a really important lesson, and the lesson was this. You will burn yourself out if the draft on your fire isn't open. Okay, so pause there. We're going to come back to that. I know. I lost all man points that I had gained at that point. Back in the late 1800s, one of the most well-known psychologists of all time, Mr. William James, began to study something that he called the psychology of the second wind. You've heard this phrase, the second wind. He was fascinated by the fact that nearly every human being understands what it means to warm up. If you're going to go exercise, if you're going to go play a sport, if you're going to go work hard, you got to get, you got to get warm, whatever it is, a task on the job, hard work, whatever it is, we take a while to get started. Every week, it seems to take me a few hours to actually sit down and start, okay, where am I going to go with this sermon? You have to warm up. And James also identified that most humans typically slow down on their exercise, their work, or their jobs when they meet what he called the first layer of fatigue. That most of us will hit a point with any hard effort, any exercise, any work, any job, any task, where we start to slow down because it gets a little bit difficult. We've run enough, we've worked enough, we've performed enough, enough, and we're tired, so we stop. That's the typical nature of human life. But what fascinated William James was what happened beyond that first layer 
of fatigue. He suggested, he said this, if an unusual necessity forces us to press onward, a surprising thing occurs. The fatigue gets worse up to a critical point when gradually or suddenly it passes away and we are actually fresher than we were before. This is what the psychologist began to call the psychology of the second wind. He said that for the majority of most human beings, most of us never reach the full potential that we have within us. This is his quote, and I love this. He said, everyone's familiar with the phenomenon of feeling more or less alive on different days. Everyone knows on any given day that there are energies slumbering in us which the incitements of that day don't call forth, but which we might display if these were greater. Most of us feel as if a sort of cloud weighs upon us, keeping us below our highest notch of clearness and discernment, sureness and reasoning, or firmness in deciding. And then he says this, watch this. Compared with what we ought to be, go ahead and bring up that next slide. Compared with what we ought to be, we are only half awake. Look at your neighbor and say half awake. Most of you call that Sunday morning. We are only half awake. Our fires are damped. Our drafts, are you with me? are closed. We're making use of only a small part of our possible mental and physical resources. So William James has this different thinking in psychology, but the same lesson. You will burn out if the draft of your fire is not open. It's amazing to me how many of us today that I meet who are burning out. In our family, my dad and I talk a lot about this. We joke about it, but I think about how quickly people give up, how quickly we quit. We, we talk sometimes about the, the greatest generation, the World War II generation, the veterans who grew up under the shadow of the Great Depression and then went off to fight a war that eventually claimed the lives of nearly 420,000 Americans. And I say we joke about it because we talk about what would happen if that generation were to confront the problems of our generation, the wimpiness of our current Days. What would they say when they misplace their cell phones? Oh my gosh, how will I survive? I can't even right now. Please don't even say that phrase to me ever. <laughs> how would the greatest generation react over the frustration of not getting the proper sized pumpkin spice latte that we ordered? What would they do? What would the toughest of men and women tell you when the grocery store runs out of your organic kale chips? So you Instagram just how frustrated you are. And that's the lighthearted part of it, right? We all go through those things. We go through those places where we really should just push through our uncomfortable circumstances and build a bridge and get over it. But what about the serious burnout that actually happens so frequently today? In recent months, there's a pastor of a church, a very, very, very large church, probably the largest in America. There are about 26,000 people on a Sunday morning. You think we have problems. (laughs) And this pastor, after so many years of building an incredible legacy, has been called out and confronted for years of ongoing sexual harassment. He's literally losing every single thing he's built. What happens to someone who seemingly has so much success that causes them to give up everything? What about the people that you know that are burning out, the ones who enter a midlife crisis and just quit? They quit the marriage, they quit the church, they quit the children, they quit the job, whatever it is, they hit this point of fatigue and they burn out. What about the situations that might even justify burning out? 
that might make sense, the places where your grief is so painful, so great that you just can't go on, the days where the bills just keep piling up and you wonder what would happen if I just packed the car and started driving, how far could I get? What about those moments where your guilt is so painful you just turn inward and become this island of isolation, the seasons where the depression or the anxiety is so cumbersome that it's difficult to even want to get out of bed? You see, this spectrum from the slightest interruptions and inconveniences all the way to the most painful and broken situations, it seems to me like today we've become a culture of people that never get to the second wind. It seems like we never get there. We've become this people who are, we're simply gifted at giving up. What's my spiritual gift? I quit. (laughs) That's what I do. Still, somewhere deep within us, we have what William James talks about. We have this incredible capacity for amazing moments and epic destinies. But as he says, we are making use of only a small part of our possible mental and physical resources. Today, we're beginning this series called Grit. And you ever met someone really gritty? Just raise your hand. You don't have to look at your spouse. If it's them, just look at me. Don't just, just stay with me. You ever met someone whose fire is blazing? Someone who lives just all the time fully alive? Someone who's fully awake? See, over the next four weeks, as we study this one story from the book of Ruth, we're going to cover four chapters in four weeks. I want, I actually have two hopes for you from this series. This is today's introduction. You're going to get attention today. Maybe you're going to walk out like, well, I don't understand. You're welcome. Take that and go and be blessed with your attention this week. And then come back and we'll, we'll spell it out. But I have two hopes for you. The first is this. I want you to start to believe. Number one, this is what I'm hoping for in this series. Number one, I want you to believe what William James says. I want you to believe that compared with what we could be, Compared with what we ought to be, we are actually only half awake. Because I believe, I want you to believe this because if you believe that, you have an incredible God-given potential deep within you that has the potential to literally reshape your life. If you simply start there. If you simply start with a perspective that says, I'm not destined for doom, I'm not destined for destruction, I'm not destined to quit all the time, I actually have some potential in me, I think that simple perspective shift could reshape everything. I believe you'll find untapped strength and unknown passion. I believe you will accomplish greater good than you've ever dreamed. I believe you will begin to not only survive your days, but thrive in your days and build a legacy that will last for generations. I believe you have the potential with that perspective shift to reshape not your life, but four generations from now. Can you imagine? I believe if you believe in the power of grit within you that your destiny, your meaning, your purpose are only just beginning. So that's my first hope. I want you to believe that that potential is there. The second hope is this. I want you to let the fire of your own grit start to burn. I want you to actually let your draft open up. See, here's the thing. You're all making fun of me because I didn't know the fireplace had a draft. Can I make fun of you because you haven't let the draft of your life open? That you're living half awake? But you have to open it. You see, you can't just believe you have this potential and keep burning out. You can't keep quitting when you start to say, no, God has put fire inside of me. He's put something inside of me that's meant to be alive and awake, and I can't keep it contained anymore because then when problems come, if you believe that, you start to go, I gotta keep moving. I gotta keep going. I can't slow down. No matter the cost, I will press into the work before me, and I will go hard or I will die trying. When it comes to your life in Christ, this is the very thing I'm praying for you to act on in this series. So as we start this series, that's where we're going. 
Okay, the end of this four weeks, that's where we're going. Now, here's what I'm asking. Come for all four weeks because it's a rocky road to get there, okay? Ruth, that was all introduction. Are you ready for the sermon? <laughs> Ruth 1 is where you would go. I would imagine most of you have never read the book of Ruth. Maybe you've never read much of the first half of the Bible, the Old Testament. Maybe it seems intimidating or like God is just ticked off all the time and you don't want to read that part. Maybe you didn't even know there was a book called Ruth. Over the next four weeks, we're going to go through these four chapters, and, and I want to tell you this, this first chapter, this chapter one, sets up the story. It's a place where the tension starts to emerge. So let's dig in. Here's, here's verse one of Ruth one. Here's what it says. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So understand this. The book before Ruth is called Judges, well done. The book before Ruth is Judges. This is kind of an extension story of the book of Judges. And the time when the Judges ruled was this book, this story of spiritual and moral cycles in the culture of Israel. The book of Judges literally tells story after story after story of how the Israelites would reject God and God would send a judge or a hero to call them back to himself and then they would see this mighty act of valor and they would turn back to God and then the judge would die and then they would turn away from God. So there's kind of this ongoing cycle. The second thing we find out is that at this time, there's a great famine in the land. There wasn't enough food for the Jewish people. A famine, if they looked back at the stories of Abraham and Isaac, they would go, oh, this story is starting to tell us something because in the famines, that's when God shows up. Ever recognize when you're spiritually dry, when there's not enough provision, that's the perfect time for God to show up in your life? That's what's going on here. Here's what it goes on to say. So a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. If you're having a baby, I think that's a great name. His wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They sound like Klingons, right? They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab, and they lived there. Here's what I want you to think about. There's this famine in Israel. This man, his two sons, and his wife Naomi leave the land and go to Moab. I want you to think of Moab as kind of the Fairmont of Israel. It's about 25 to 30 miles away. They didn't like each other. They weren't friends. They didn't hang out on the weekends, okay? Moab wouldn't let the Israelites through way back in the original stories of the Jews. When the Jews were leaving Egypt out of slavery, Moab said, you can't come through our country. You're not allowed here. And so God said, don't ever let those people worship with you. They rejected you. They rejected me. The Moabites actually worshiped false gods. They made human sacrifices. This was not a nice land to go there. For this family to go there, the famine in Israel had to be really, really bad. So here you have this Jewish family faced with suffering who end up in pagan territory. Isn't this a cool story? Look at verse three. Now, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about 10 years, both Malon and Kilion, her sons, also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. So a couple things that I want you to grab from this. One, Naomi is the main character of this book, okay? The main character of this book is not Ruth. Everybody with me on that? The book is named Ruth. Ruth is not the main character. I know, it's strange. Naomi is the main character of this story because she is a Jewish woman who has lost everything. The Old Testament is a Jewish story. It's a story of the Israelites. So it's critical to see what happens to these characters, but essentially to Naomi. Now this good Jewish story starts with a man who bravely takes his wife and his two sons into pagan territory. And all the Jewish men are like, this is great. This is like Braveheart for Israelites. Here we go. 
And just a couple verses in, the man and the sons die and all the men go, is this a chick flick? Are you kidding me? Because now we've got an unlikely story. We've got a twist is that all the men die and the new central character is a widowed woman who has nothing left but two Moabite daughters-in-law. This is absolutely fascinating. She's in a completely hopeless place. Her husband's dead. Her sons have no children for 10 years and then they both die. So she has options. No, she doesn't. She can't return to her father's house based on the cultural rules. She can't remarry. She's beyond childbearing years. She's not able to remarry. She can't support herself through craft. She's actually destined to become a peasant, destined to live in hopeless poverty. We see this today even when we go to Africa. This is the culture where if your husband dies, the women lose everything. This is where Naomi is. Look at verse six. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them. She and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. So she's living in foreign territory and she hears that God is actually providing. Now listen, this is the first time in the book that God is actually mentioned. See, in the midst of this darkness, there's actually a hint of hope. And another really interesting piece of this story, if you go home and read Ruth tonight, God is really not mentioned that often. It's like a picture of God working behind the scenes. So as we start to think about this, here's the first thing that I want you to recognize about grit. Grit is a gift that you don't receive from easy circumstances. Can I just say that again? Because some of you need to hear this. We don't get gritty when things are easy. I thought somebody might amen that. It's too late now. Grit does not come in easy circumstances. So if you want to follow Christ in a way that I hope you, you, you begin to believe living fully awake, living with that fire blazing, then we need to stop thinking easy is the goal. How many people do you, do you meet that are fully alive, fully awake, and life is easy all the time? Oh, yeah, I got a mansion. I'm so passionate about life. I have enough. Everything's happy. No. Easy has never been the goal. It actually says this in the book of James, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Have you ever thought about that verse? You're telling me to be happy when trials come? I can't even, right? It's like the motto of our generation. Consider it pure joy whenever you face trials. What if that began to frame who we are? Oh, life's terrible. I'm so excited. It's so hard right now, but I'm so joyful. That's what James says. See, to this point, the book of Ruth has been the introduction. It's the preface of the book to this point that Naomi says, oh, we gotta go back. This is the text that happens at the beginning of the movie that, that says, here's what's going on in the world at this time. And you need to know, it's not easy. Look at verse seven. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she'd been living and she set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Now listen, Naomi leaves her Moabite context. She leaves the immediate place. It's not that she's able to walk away from her hopelessness. It's not that she's not going to stay where she, where she already is and expect the hopelessness to get better. She's not walking away from the bad parts of her life. She's actually embracing the hopelessness. She's saying this, this hopelessness, this bitterness, this hurt, this pain, this anger is now a part of my life and I've been living in enemy territory. I'm going home. 
I'm not getting away from the hopelessness. I'm taking it with me. It must be my best friend now because it kind of stinks all the time. But here's what I know. The second thing, grit calls you to move. If you're going to be gritty, it's going to call you to make a move. I use this phrase all the time. I used to use this in youth ministry all the time. I haven't introduced my kids to it, but they're going to get it. Embrace the suck. (laughs) Embrace the suck. I know some of you are like, that's a swear word in our house. It's not in mine, so I can say it. I want to give you a principle that happens for nearly every single character in the Bible who ends up being celebrated. And I'll preface it with this. You're not going to get it until you truly live it. But this is the truth of people in the scriptures and the heroes of faith. For every biblical hero, for every man, for every woman who's ever lived under the presence of Christ, this is absolutely true. All the Abrahams, Isaacs, Jacobs, Moses, David, Solomon, the prophets, Ruth, the disciples, so many others. This is something they came to know only through their own experiences. Here it is. When your situation is hopeless, when your situation is hopeless and you got nothing left, that is the perfect setting for hope to break in. That's the perfect place. You go, I'm hopeless, I got nothing left. And I would go, awesome, God's about to show up. Embrace the suck, watch. Watch what God's gonna do. Watch what God's gonna do. Because when it's hopeless, then God says, oh, finally you're at the end of your rope, I can finally do something in your life. When you find yourself in that place, when you have nothing left, when you've cried tears that have finally run out, when you've lost so much, there's nothing left to you lose. This is the place where, and I know it doesn't make sense because some of you never lived it, hope is not far away. But, and this is a really important but, for that hope to break in, you have to move. Grit requires that you move. Now, listen, I didn't say it requires you get over it. I didn't say that. I didn't say, suck it up, buttercup. That's what I like to say sometimes. (laughs) Naomi does not suck it up. She carries her, she picks her hopelessness up, puts it in her suitcase, and says, I'm hauling this home. She doesn't just move on. I always hate when I hear people give that advice to hurting friends, and I'll never give it myself. Oh, just, just kind of move on. Just You got to press on. No, you can't move on when life is awful, but you can move. You can move somewhere. You can move anywhere. I would say this to all of you here today. Whatever you're facing, whatever's crushing you, it may be time to move. And I know your first question, where? Where should I move? What if you moved to Honesty. See, some of you have been carrying so much pain and hurt and brokenness, but you've never been honest about it. You've never come clean about the brokenness in your life, the hurt, the bad decisions, the guilt, the shame. You've never come out with that. Many, many today I find want to meet with me or want to meet with a counselor, not because they want counseling, but because they want comfort. Do you know the difference? I, I want to sit down with you and I want to spill my problems and I want you to make me feel better. That's comfort. Counseling says, it's time to move. You've come clean. You've been honest. I love you as your pastor, and I'm sorry that you're hurting, but let's move. Let's come honest about that. Some of you need to move away from logic because your logic doesn't make sense, and it's only faith in Christ that's going to get you through this. Aren't we good at logic? Aren't we good at intellectual rationality? Well, if I do this, then this will happen, but this didn't happen, so now what do I do? You trust the Holy Spirit. You trust that God is working behind the scenes. Some of you need to move to surrender. And listen, I'm saying this with all compassion. I hope you hear this in my voice. Some of you need to embrace the suck of your life and go, God, I don't know how to do this anymore, but I'm gonna surrender it to you. I'm simply saying to you, whether you change my circumstances or not, I'm gonna continue to worship you. 
I'm gonna continue to glorify you. And I'm telling you, some of you are going, that's so hard, I can't do that. I know, I know it's tough. I'm cheering you on because I've seen the heroes of the faith in my life do that and they always come out stronger. Some of you need to move to somewhere safe. Some of you need to get to a place where you go, you know what, this is where I felt welcome, where I felt warmth, where I felt hospitality and connection and I'm gonna go back there. Naomi's grit actually says, I'm gonna move. Look at verse eight. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, I picture them packing up and getting ready to go. She says, go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you've shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye and they wept aloud and they said to her, we will go back with you to your people. See, Naomi's moving, but she doesn't want to demand anyone has to come with her. These women, had they gone to Israel with her, were guaranteed to experience shame. They were foreign. They were pagan women. They were widows moving into the Israelite territory. They were going to get shamed. They were going to be cast out. They were going to be living as poor widows. The only protection they had was Naomi, and Naomi had nothing to offer them. So she tells them to go home. I thought about this question. Have you ever had so little left to offer that you just felt like it was better not to take anyone down with your ship? You ever been at a point where you're just like, you know what, my life is wrecked, and I don't want you to be wrecked too, so I'm going to start pushing everybody away. I'm going to start run. I just don't, I don't want anybody to go down with me. Can I just say this to you? This is, this is the third thing. Grit dies in isolation. All of our grit will die when we isolate ourselves. You need people around you that will help you remain Gritty. See, people give up when they go solo. I, I, I've continued, this is my biblical theology. When we're lonely, we make dumb decisions. Amen? Some of you are like, yeah, I've been there, I've done that. We make dumb decisions when we're lonely. I would say it this way, isolation breeds ignorance. When you isolate, you become ignorant because you think the world functions only according to the way you see the world. And the rest of the world is gone, so nobody's there to tell you you're being ignorant. Isolation breeds ignorance. Loneliness is a haven for poor judgment. And I don't say that harshly. I say it because many of you are lonely and I see you chasing connection with false relationships when you need the relationship with Christ and his church. And you're coming to church to pick up women. Can we step on some toes? And you need to pick up Jesus. You you need to stop picking up the women because they're not interested. They're here for Jesus. And if you'd get interested in Jesus, they might find some interest in you. I'm not promising anything. I'm not prophesying over you, but I'm saying you, you're never gonna know because you're so interested in them. Loneliness is a haven for poor judgment. Don't Don't isolate. Don't alienate. Bring all of you to all of us. Naomi says, you you just don't even need to go with me. And they say, we'll come with you. Look at verse 11. But Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? And I'm gonna ha- am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? Do you hear the, the rising emotion in this? No, my daughters, it's more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. This is an incredibly powerful, painful scene for this widow. She's looking at the closest people that remain to her and saying, no, there's, there's no way. There's no way this is going to happen. She's in the depth of her emotion describing logically. Some of you need to move from logic. 
for them the force of her hopelessness. Look at verse 14. At this they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. Now, this is the second twist in the story. This Moabite woman named Ruth is clinging to her widowed Jewish mother-in-law rather than returning to her own home for protection and provision. Now, don't miss this. Orpah is not evil. Orpah is not bad. She's logical. She does the logical thing. But Ruth does the gritty thing. I love that. Ruth does the gritty thing. She may not be the main character, but by far, Ruth is the grittiest. Watch her response in verse 16. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined, (laughs) To go with her, she stopped urging her. Here's here's the the other thing about grit. Grit surrenders self for the sake of the other. See, grit gives up itself for the sake of the other. Ruth says, I'm more committed to Naomi than I am even to my own identity. Ruth says, I'm not Jewish, but I will become everything you need for the sake of your survival. Friends, she takes on, Ruth takes on the role of the church. Amen? Because that's what the church is called to. We're called to the broken places. We're called to become all things to all people. She steps into a foreign culture with the sheer hope of the words, I'm with you and I'm not going anywhere. Can you imagine if we as followers of Christ learned those words, I'm with you? And I'm not going anywhere. I'm not going anywhere. Some of you show up to broken situations and you worry because you don't know what to say. You don't have advice. You don't have wisdom. You don't have all the biblical understanding. Can I just give you the best answer biblically that you can ever give? I'm with you and I'm not going anywhere. We're going to walk through this together. We're going to carry grit. You don't have any grit left? I'm going to pick up my grit and I'm going to pour some on you because grit is a little bit contagious. If the church were to take this on, we could truly change the world. If we could surrender all of the stuff that is dividing, now listen, I'm not talking politics, I'm talking church, that is dividing us and pick up grit, we would see something incredible happen in our world. Who needs this around you? See, we as the church are not called to run from hell. We're not called to avoid hell. We're not called to this division that says, oh, all the bad secular world. We're called to go into hell and pull people out. We are called to the hopeless places. Can you imagine whose lives would be changed if we embraced this for the people in our lives that don't know Jesus? This Wednesday, we start this thing called the table. The intent of the table is simple. More of Jesus, more of each other. Some of you need to show up to the table because you need to move out of your pain or move with your pain or move to a place where you say, I've been avoiding this and I'm gonna bring it. Some of you need to show up to the table because you need to start helping someone besides you and your two or you're three, or you're four. You need to pour yourself out. Look at verse 19. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them, and the women explained, can this be Naomi? Can this be Naomi? And look at what she says. Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. 
He's dumped me out. He's ruined me. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. See, this is, this is the pit of despair, depression, fear. Naomi says, change my name because the one I used to have died when I lost everything else in my life. Give me this name Mara that means bitter or empty. I have nothing left, but this is the hook because as she's spouting this off, who is standing right beside her? Ruth is standing right there as Naomi is spilling this out. She doesn't reference anything but her own hopelessness, but watch the next verse, verse 22. So Naomi returned from Moab and then underline this, accompanied by Ruth. I think you could say accompanied by grit. The Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Here's, here's the last principle that I want to give you today. For many of you, whether you see it or not, if you call yourself a follower of Christ, then this is true for you. Grit has been there the whole time. Whether you see it or not, if you are a believer in Jesus, if you've surrendered your life to Christ, grit has been beside you the whole time. I will say this. If you do not call yourself a follower of Jesus, you are welcome to struggle through that, to wrestle with that, to bring your skepticism, your doubt, your questions here at any point. I hope you'll stay and journey with us. But I will say out of love, I don't know how you do it. I don't know how you do it. It, it, it. To me, I don't know how to find hope outside of a creator and a God who loves us. Because if we call ourselves followers of Jesus, then grit is there the whole time. See, the hidden part of this story that you're gonna see over the coming weeks is that Yahweh, God, is taking care of things behind the scene. This is where I wanna land. What if God has brought you to this place in this moment? What if he has sustained you right up to this point? And what if he's been pulling some strings behind the scenes, working on your behalf and orchestrating this moment where you might actually start to live fully awake? Where the draft of your spiritual fire, I know, I screwed up the cottage, but don't screw up your life, might open. And there might be a fire come to life that says, you know what, I've been living half awake, and now that I know now that I know grit, that Jesus, that the power of the Holy Spirit is with me, then I can be fully awake, fully alive. I want to show you one more set of verses. I'm going to have the band come up, and I want you to hear this. This is Romans 8. Here's what Paul says. He says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Friends, it doesn't take much to see that our world is crying out. Amen? I'm not angry. I'm just saying that's reality. It doesn't take much to look around and say our world is broken and desperate for hope. They're looking for something. They're looking. We don't even know what we're looking for, but the world is crying out. And he says this, not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit grown inwardly. We groan on the inside. Many of us never bring it to the outside. We're scared to death of what people might find out about us, but we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship. He says, you're groaning as you're waiting for God to say, you're my son, you're my daughter, I'm gonna take you home and protect you. You're broken, you're hurting. But he says, for in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Hopelessness is the perfect setting for hope. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. I love that because the spirit, listen, the spirit is the source of grit for the believer in Christ. 
when you receive Jesus as a savior in your life, when you do what we talk about here, and I say, I'm asking you, do you want to step across a line of faith? Do you want to give your heart to Christ? Do you want to ask Jesus to be your savior? What you're doing is saying, I'm inviting the Holy Spirit to begin to dwell in my life, to dwell in my heart, to become the very center of my being. And so when anything comes, it doesn't mean it's not hopeless. It doesn't mean life is perfect. It means that I have a source of strength, a source of energy that intercedes on my behalf. When I'm broken, when you're broken in tears and you got nothing left, when your friends abandon you, when your family rejects you, when you're on your knees and you go, I wanna pray, but I don't know how to pray. There's a Holy Spirit that is standing at that moment going, God, he has nothing left to say. She has nothing left to say, but I know the words. I know what needs to be said. I know you need to step in. I know you need to bring life to this broken place. I know there's darkness. And it's time. God, show up in my friend's life. Show up in our friend's life. Show up and do something because I'm with them and I'm not going anywhere. Amen? And that gives us that power of grit. I don't know where that came from. I got a little excited there. I've got like eight more verses, but I'm not going to go there. Just know this. Verse 31 of that same chapter says this. If God is for us, who can be against us? Who can be against us? Friends, I have so much compassion for you as your pastor. I know so, there's so many stories. I thought about changing the word of this series to, to something else that rhymes with it because that's kind of the week that it's been. There's so much hurt, so much brokenness, so much pain, so much rejection, so much rebellion, so much just deliberate sin. But I don't want to be your comforter. I don't want to be that for you. I, I'll hug you and give you, you know, like, go get them. But I want to see transformation. I want to see grit come to life because we serve a savior who wants that same thing. If God can be, if, if God is for us, who can be against us? Let's pray together.